Next, on Book TV's Afterwards, former Speaker of the House of Representatives Newt Gingrich offers his thoughts on the threat the U.S. faces from China. He's interviewed by American Enterprise Institute scholar Oriana Mastro. Afterwards is a weekly interview program with relevant guest hosts interviewing top nonfiction authors about their latest work. All Afterwards programs are also available as podcasts. I'm happy to be here to discuss uh, Newt Gingrich's new book entitled Trump versus China. Uh, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing well, and I'm very excited by it. And I do want to say for our audience that uh, the podcast that I did with you the other week, you are brilliant in the amounts you know and the degree to which you're able to make it uh, apply to modern America is really remarkable. So I've been looking forward very much to this chance to chat with you. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. And I had the pleasure of reading through your book. Uh, I was very impressed with how quickly that book came out. My last book took me seven years to write. So uh, I think <laughs> I need to take a page from your, your playbook and, and be a little bit more diligent <laughs> in my research and writing. But as you mentioned, my, my research focuses on China issues. So I think we're going to have a pretty interesting discussion about the challenge that the United States faces given the rise of China. Okay, my, 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 ego, my ego requires me to ask of you, but what did you think, as a genuine China scholar, which you are and I'm not, what, what did you think overall about the information in the book? You start off with the tough questions. I would say that a lot of the, the underlying recommendations and your view about how China is pursuing its goals, uh, I would agree with. Though we can talk about there are a lot of reasonable people who have different interpretations, but I personally think that what's very problematic is how China is trying to pursue um, power and influence in the world. I might disagree with some of the characterizations of China, which is what I think I might start with in asking you about, if you don't mind. Good, sure. So first, before we get into you know the nitty-gritty of the book, I was just curious, because you mentioned in the intro to the book that you know this the challenge of China, the threat of China, is something that you have recently come to really focus on. So I'm curious about what was it exactly that sparked your interest in this topic and inspired you to write the book? Well, let me start by saying that I've, I've been looking at China, reading about it, thinking about it since 1960. So it is not a sudden new thing. Uh, and I'd been visiting China when I was before I was Speaker of the House and then when I was Speaker of the House, and I continued to visit China in uh, the last decade. Uh, and I'll, I'll tell you a quick story that, that is, was really a turning point for me. Um, we went to, on one of our trips, I think it was in 2005, we went to the Pearl Factory, uh, which is a big building in downtown Beijing designed basically to sell goodies to tourists. And we went up to about the sixth floor, and um, I had two people accompanying me who were former National Security Council analysts, uh, both of whom had gone to Beijing University and were fluent in Chinese. And I had two young grandchildren at the time, and I wanted to buy them pajamas. And uh, we found a woman who ran a pajama store, and the, guy, the two people with me said, now, whatever she says, come back with 10% of what her price is. Right, I would have said uh, half, you know, but, you, yeah. <laughs> no, well, I'm just telling you this, you'll see in a minute. So I, frankly, you know, I'm not a typical American. I go to Walmart, there's a price, you buy it or you don't buy it. You, don't, you can't go negotiate. So she wants 200 uh, renminbi, and I come back and say, following my advisors, uh, 20. 
and they said she will now tell you that you're bankrupting her family, that she won't be able to feed her children, that the store may go broke, and then she'll give you a price. So she came back like at, say, 180, and they said, go up 10. And so I went up to 30, and she went through another round. This all takes about 40 minutes. Uh, we finally settled at 50, and my two advisors were disgusted and said, you know, she was going to make money at 30. And, but what hit me was her ability to negotiate, her cheerfulness at negotiating, the degree to which that was a part of her day, is unlike anything U.S. trade representatives deal with. And Americans go into a, an event to get a deal. Uh, I think the Chinese would like to have a deal, but they go into the event to negotiate and to talk and to wait until they get the deal they want. And it just struck me that there was this mismatch of cultural realities and that as you walked through it, you began to see more and more of it. And so I finally concluded that the Chinese, particularly watching Xi Jinping, uh, the uh, general secretary of the Communist Party, um, and his consolidation of power and the degree to which they've dramatically increased their police state tactics, it hit me that, that we're really... Uh, diverging from the model that the American elites had built up, <clears throat> which was over here and was optimistic. This was an evolutionary China that wanted to be more like us. And in fact, that's not the real China. Uh, the real China has its own history, its own culture, its own ambitions. Uh, and as we're seeing literally while you and I are talking, they're intervening in Turkey to help prop up the Turkish economy against American sanctions. They're intervening in Venezuela to help prop up the dictator against American activities. Uh, and so I, it hit me that we needed to reset our understanding of this extraordinary country in order to develop strategies that would enable us to survive. And that was really why I set out to write the book. So I think uh, an accurate characterization of the Chinese Communist Party and their role in Chinese society is absolutely critical. You mentioned, too, the initial recognition of the threat and then devising a U.S. strategy in response. I agree with your assertion in the book that the basis of power in China is the party and that they have no intention of democratizing. Um, that has never been uh, a belief or, or viewpoint of my own. I always thought that was kind of wishful thinking, and, and I continue to think it's wishful thinking now. But I want to explore a little bit more about how you characterize the party and in particular this relationship with the people. So the first thing is, throughout the book, you refer to the government as a totalitarian government. Uh, in my study of China, most of the time, uh, we refer to China as an authoritarian government. Now, it seems like a minor distinction, but I actually think when we're trying to come up with good U.S. responses, the distinction is important, right? In totalitarianism, this is a society in which the government controls every aspect and allows there to be no political, economic, social freedom at all for their people. Now, I think that there are pockets of totalitarianism in China, for example, in Xinjiang, but there has been, you wouldn't call it democratization, but there are areas in which the Chinese people do have uh, more freedoms. And according to kind of authoritarianism, the party exercises power, I would argue, within relatively predictable limits. We, I, the average Chinese person knows what would get them in trouble and what keeps them out of trouble. And so given that, I think, um, you know, in my view, it could get a lot worse, right? The repression in China could get uh, a lot worse. We don't have a state like North Korea right now operating in China um, with the Communist Party. So 
What is, what is your view of that distinction, and why did you decide in the book to characterize it as a totalitarian government, even though I think you know most um, literature databases that, that monitor uh, these types of freedoms characterize it a, a bit less repressive in terms of being more authoritarian than totalitarian? Well, I'd say, first of all, that in my experience, uh, authoritarian governments are in part limited by their capacity to exert total control. So if you look, for example, at, at uh, Mussolini's fascism, uh, he really couldn't have a totalitarian state because he never had an instrument of power strong enough to do that. Stalin, on the other hand, and Hitler both had systems of power so enormous that they could actually impose a truly totalitarian society. So I look at China, and in the first place, the first thing I'd raise, and I'd love to get your reaction as an expert, is the Falun Gong. I mean, here, here is a breathing society which, by the very speed with which it spread, apparently frightened the central government into a reaction of such ferocity uh, that they've been killing them, locking them up. Uh, the Falun Gong themselves would argue uh, that some Falun Gong have been sacrificed in order to harvest organs uh, that, that are then used for people who are sick. But, but even if you don't believe that more grotesque version, it's very clear that the Falun Gong sends some kind of enormous signal of threat, even though they're not particularly an ideological or a political movement, but they are a sociologically deviant movement as seen by the Chinese. The second example I would give you, uh, we just did a podcast similar to the one you and I did, we did a podcast with a gentleman who teaches at Hunter College uh, who was disappeared, a Chinese citizen, uh, and the government came along and picked him up off the street, did not tell his family, did not tell his lawyer, kept him uh, uh, as long as they wanted to, and then released him back out as a warning. Recently, as you know, uh, they disappeared uh, the most popular actress in China, a woman who some people believe was the highest paid actress in the world, they just took her out of circulation for six months, and nobody knew where she was. That's why it's called disappeared. Uh, now, that to me is, is a totalitarian culture, not an authoritarian culture. And what they're, when they took her off the street, what they were saying to everybody was, none of you are safe. If we decide to come after you, we can come after you. That's much closer to Orwell's 1984 than it is to a, a classic definition of an authoritarian system. I, again, this is a useful conversation. I'd love to get your reaction to that analysis. Well, I think in the book you do mention the Falun Gong as well as the Uyghur minority and, and even Catholic clergy, and there are definitely groups because of their ability to organize and inspire, um, you know, threaten the party. And when the Communist Party is threatened, as you mentioned, uh, you know, they are no holds bar on, on crushing dissent. Uh, the main question is whether or not, you know, they're, they're crushing all dissent across the board. And I think current China compared to, you know, Mao Zedong China or like a North Korea, there is a little bit more of freedom of maneuver when it comes to economic freedoms. And even to a degree, within confines, obviously not threatening the sovereignty, as they would put it, of the Chinese nation, of uh, making suggestions for the party as a whole. But it brings up this, this other point, which I found interesting in your book, about the relationship between the Chinese people and the Communist Party. So you brought up um, this idea of the China dream, right? The great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. And you mentioned that, you know, this is really the ambition of the party and that most of your book is about confronting the threat of the party, not of the Chinese people. 
But in my experience, while the Chinese people, many of them are very much against the increased repression under Xi Jinping domestically, they seem to be very supportive of his ambitious international agenda. They like to see China's stature on the global stage increase, and they like to see China stand up to the United States. And so I was curious about what your viewpoints were about the relationship between the Chinese people and the Communist Party, because at least in terms of foreign policy, I see them as being supportive of that ambitious agenda, which, which doesn't negate any of your recommendations. If anything, it really highlights that we're facing an even greater challenge than perhaps we would be if it was, if it was just the party. No, I, I think that's right. I think that uh, the degree to which um, there is a historic China that's 5,000 years old, there is a deep sense of pride at being Chinese, uh, there is a um, sense that uh, they have a rightful place in the world, there is a pretty deep belief that there was a century of humiliation in which the Western powers, including Japan, uh, did things to humiliate what had been up to 1800, the richest and most powerful country in the world. I think all those things are real. And I think to that degree, uh, much as, as uh, you know, Gamal Abdel Nasser was able to play on Egyptian um, nationalism or Ataturk was able to play on Turkish nationalism, there's certainly a zone in which Xi Jinping uh, represents the interest of the Chinese people, and they do have a bond. I also believe that Deng Xiaoping's gamble was right, and that by creating so much wealth, uh, they have strengthened the people's willingness to tolerate the party, because in a sense, what the party is offered is a contract that says, uh, we will give you a strong nation you can be proud of, and we will give you a strong economy in which you have a pretty decent life, in return for which you stay out of politics and you let us run the country at a political level. And I think that that contract has actually worked pretty well. Now, Mayor Bloomberg, in a recent interview, went so far as to suggest it's not a dictatorship because they have to maintain the support of the people. I would argue that what you're watching, for example, in Hong Kong, and what you see with the whole process of disappearances, control, censoring of the, uh, of the Internet, uh, the concentration camps for the Uyghurs, is uh, the they party is quite happy to have a contract that is uh, passive and uh, has compliance uh, by uh, prosperity, but is prepared, if, if challenged, to use whatever level of force is necessary to uh, impose uh, a continuation of party rule on the country. So you, you bring up Hong Kong. Um, I just got back from China three days ago, and I found, as I have recently found a lot of my conversations with my Chinese colleagues, increasingly frustrating. And the thing that frustrates me the most that I'm interested in getting your take on is actually the way that China uh, justifies some of its problematic behaviors in the international system is not to say that um, they're unique or they're Chinese. They say that they're exactly like us. I don't know if you've heard this argument, but usually when China does sure. something, they say, the United States does it too. So in the Hong Kong example with the recent MBA flare-up, uh, I found myself debating, well, you, have, you, know, you don't have complete freedom of speech in the United States either. For example, you, know, you can't engage in hate speech that incites violence, right? And I would say, well, you know, there's different limitations, right? China, they're much more limited in what they can say. And, and the fact that the Chinese government is trying to influence the Americans' ability to speak freely in the United States, I find highly problematic. 
But it, but it leads to this debate of that it's become increasingly difficult, not only with the Chinese, but on the international stage, to articulate how the United States is different and how we behave differently um, than China does. So I think we haven't done a great job at this. So I'm wondering, you know, what are your viewpoints on how we should be presenting, you know, U.S. foreign policy uh, as being distinct from China as if we're trying to compete with them for influence and power? Well, I, I, let me start and say, to add to your examples, uh, two things. One, I talked with a very senior Chinese leader about uh, the uh, concentration camps uh, for the Uyghurs in Western China. And with an absolutely straight face, uh, he looked at me and he said, you know, you shouldn't think of them as concentration camps. Think of them as boarding schools. Now, somebody who can deliver that line without flinching is first of all a master diplomat. And second, how are you gonna have an argument with them? Because their position is insane. Yet, that was the party position. He was prepared to say it. He probably is even prepared to semi-believe it, although I think deep down he doesn't. Um, the second example I wanna give you is from the Soviet era. Reagan collected anti-Soviet jokes. And uh, the first time he met up with, with, with Gorbachev, he wanted to start with a joke because he wanted to remind Gorbachev uh, that uh, there, we, we actually had moral superiority. And the joke he told him was, this guy says to the press, I am as free in Russia as I am in Washington. And the reporter says, well, how can that be? He says, look, I can go to Washington, I can stand up in front of the White House, and I can say, Ronald Reagan is a warmonger and a fool. The guy said, yeah. He said, and I can go to the Kremlin, and stand up in front of the Kremlin, and say, Ronald Reagan is a warmonger and a fool. So I'm equally free. And that's part of the argument you get into. I mean, so, you know, they, they take uh, what's happening with the Uyghurs at over a million people in camps and compare it to Guantanamo, right. where we bend over backwards to, to protect the Koran of every one of our prisoners. They, uh, I think, are very good at, at defining a reality they would like to believe in. Uh, I think our best challenge to them, frankly, is about freedom. Uh, we're not afraid. I mean, in a way, you have to be a pretty frightened government to chase down people who do breathing exercises. You have to be a pretty frightened government to disappear uh, your most famous movie star. Uh, and I think that we should, have, we should be much more aggressive on the human rights front, as we were with the Soviets over time, uh, in simply asserting that the Chinese people have every right to have elections. They have every right to speak freely. They have every right to have access to the Internet. Uh, and that there is an enormous gap uh, between the kind of things they accuse us of and the kind of things they actually do. And I think we'd be better off to have a much more aggressive pro-human rights policy uh, and, and communicating with the Chinese people and developing something like the kind of communications program we had uh, during the Cold War. So you have this great section of the book, um, not to skip to the back of the book, but it's one of my favorites. I think it's called something like, It's Not China's Fault, in which you list a lot of the ways that the United States is not competitive with China, but it's not the fault of the Chinese government. It's the fault of, you know, bureaucratic politics, you know, internal um, uh, issues with U.S. education or entitlements or, or what have you. Um, so I have a few questions about that section, but along those lines, since you just kind of brought up democratic norms and values. 
do you think that the current, uh, that President Trump and his approach to our democracy in many ways uh, being unique in his uh, approach to democratic <clears throat> norms, if I can put it that way, causes difficulties in the United States asserting its moral high ground in this competition with China? Oh, I, th I think maybe to some limited extent it does. But remember, uh, there's a real big difference between uh, President Trump's style, which is, is at times clumsy and off-putting, particularly for elites, uh, and what actually is happening. And you just saw this uh, twice in the last few days. Uh, the president had an idea, which I thought was truly terrible, to put the G7 at his golf resort at Doral. And within three days, uh, the popular reaction was so overwhelming he had to beat a hasty retreat. Uh, compare that with, um, you know, the Chinese banning uh, TV shows because they make fun of Xi Jinping. Uh, or I think they, they banned, I'm trying to remember now, which, which of the uh, comic characters they decided uh, was like Xi Jinping, and so they banned the entire character the from Pooh. China. Yeah. Yeah. Winnie the Pooh. I mean, you know, when, when you're so sad, I mean, we had, we had Theodore Roosevelt was enormously popular and saved a baby grizzly bear, a cub, uh, and that became known as Teddy's Bear, which became a teddy bear uh, when it was made into a, uh, uh, by, by, a, by a Brooklyn manufacturer who produced little teddy bears. Uh, we, we are cheerful about making fun of ourselves, uh, and I think you can tell the rigidity and the uh, insecurity of the regime by that kind of behavior. I would also point out, uh, I mean, if... Xi Jinping was in the middle of having the Communist the, the Party Congress openly investigate him. I don't know what the Chairman Schiff of China would look like, but we are we are a complicated and a clumsy and a noisy society. But on balance, that's also how we preserve our freedom. Right, right. And I think some of those differences, as you pointed out, it's very important to be projecting those not only to the Chinese people but also in our foreign policy and how we interact with nations around the world. And you know, but... Please. But let me give you a parallel example. Back in, uh, after the Russians had launched Sputnik, and we got into a frenzy, and then they, uh, they launched Sputnik 2, uh, and uh, we were really trying to catch up. And we had a, a rocket that uh, blew up on the launch pad on national television. Part of the reaction in Russia was, the Americans are so confident that they can show off their failures because it doesn't frighten them. And I think that we need to go back and have that attitude. Yes, we're a country with great turmoil. Yes, we have political leadership deeply divided. Yes, Speaker Pelosi doesn't like President Trump. But this is a free society. And therefore, one of our great strengths is that out of all this turmoil, uh, we produce, in a Hegelian sense, a new synthesis, uh, and we move forward. Uh, the Chinese, in fact, I think, are going to find themselves deeply crippled if Xi Jinping continues to escalate the degree to which he's trying to control everybody with things like this social credit system. Uh, he's going to find, in 10 or 15 years, uh, a much less creative and a much less flexible society of uh, people who are mostly frightened. It's interesting. There's a lot of mirror imaging that I see on both sides, and sometimes it's hard to predict or see things from a Chinese perspective. And just an anecdote, after President Trump was elected, uh, we had, there was the Women's March uh, in which one million people took to the streets. And I had a Chinese friend call me and ask 
if the U.S. government had been overthrown. Because in her mind, if a million people take to the streets, you know, that is a violent, you know, end of the system type of act, in which I had to explain that in the United States we have the right to peaceful protest, and, and that is not, you know, the end of the world type of occurrence. But this mirror imaging is very problematic, and you mentioned in your book as one of your recommendations that we need to have more Americans who understand China. Um, and these are a bit old statistics, but I looked up how many U.S. Um, citizens are studying in China and how many Chinese are studying in the United States. And it won't surprise you that it's very skewed. Right? You have maybe 12,000 or around tens of thousands of Americans studying in China, and you have you know, over 350,000 Chinese studying here. And one of the concerns, at least as a professor, part of the educational system, uh, is that uh, a lot of students are, are worried about studying in China because they think it will close them off to actually being able to work in government once they come back into the United States uh, because of clearances and other issues, a suspicion of their time in China. So this is an ongoing debate in the scholarly community. So I'm wondering if you have any ideas or recommendations about how we can encourage Americans not only to study China and to understand China, but feel like they're safe at home for having that kind of deep interaction with the country. Well, I mean, I think part of it is, is, is how well we do the vetting process. You know, we, we had this same experience um, when the Cold War began, and we realized that we had, we had far too few people who had studied the Soviet Union, who understood uh, the nature of communism, and uh, who were prepared to uh, develop the kind of program we needed. And we had to invest a great deal. The, uh, the, the Central Intelligence Agency uh, invested very heavily in education programs, and I think that we may be in a similar situation where we, you do have to have some level of concern uh, because they're very good at what they do. And, and they are uh, very systematic. They, the Chinese, are very systematic in trying to recruit people and in trying to intimidate people. Uh, at the same time, I think that uh, understanding China and having enough people around uh, who are fluent in Chinese uh, and who are capable of uh, interacting with fluidity uh, in Chinese circumstances. This may be one of the great uh, key paths to our ability to survive as a country, and we simply have to learn how to do it while at the same time vetting people so we make sure that they don't, in fact, end up being Chinese agents. So in part two of the book, you talk about um, how China, the, the different tactics China uses to try to fulfill its China dream, right? the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, to be a dominant uh, power, at least in Asia. And you mentioned six strategies uh, throughout the book that you talk about in detail. Can you, just for our audience, describe some of these, these strategies and why you thought these were the most problematic in terms of what China is doing? You mean, you mean the Chinese strategies? Right, the 5G, uh, the Belt yeah. and Road. Well, I, look, I, I think, first of all, we were very struck, and you'll probably find this to be naive on my part, but we were very struck with a point which had been made by uh, a lieutenant colonel at the Army War College and then picked up by Henry Kissinger in his book on China. And that is that the most common, uh, sophisticated Chinese game isn't chess, it's Go. Mm. And the Go, which is originally a Japanese game, uh, has a radically different model of success than chess does. And so we actually got uh, the National Go Association here to come and, and teach us and spend time with us and walk us through how you think in go terms. And part of that is that you, you think very long term and you think about the whole board. 
You, you never allow yourself to get sucked into looking at only one thing. So if you start thinking about the long term, and again, I, I try to tell people, if you want to understand Chinese strategies, it's much more important to read Sun Tzu than to read Clausewitz. Clausewitz is a German writing in response to the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, Sun Tzu is actually writing during the period of Warring States, uh, about 500 years before Christ, and is describing a really very different system. It's a system that uses long-term planning, it uses psychological warfare, uh, it uses spies, it uses bribery, it uses deception. So he says at one point, uh, the greatest of all generals win bloodless victories. So Sun Tzu is not just writing about cataclysmic, what, what, what uh, Clausewitz would have thought of as a central battle. He, Sun Tzu is actually saying, if you're really clever, you'll never fight a central battle because you'll outmaneuver your opponent until they collapse. If you think that way, and, and I mean, one of the best examples is the South China Sea, uh, which actually starts before the current Chinese dictatorship. In the 1930s, uh, the Kuomintang, the Nationalist Party, issued a map of the South China Sea uh, that showed a series of dashes <clears throat> and basically said, look, everything inside this line is China. Now, it's an extraordinary claim. It's about 50% of the size of, of China itself. And, 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 it's a, and nobody's ever claimed that you could actually occupy that kind of sea uh, as a sovereign territory. Well, along after the Chinese communists win, they gradually start thinking about this, and they begin to develop it. And so they go out, first in a series of skirmishes with the Vietnamese and the Filipinos and their other neighbors, and then they come up with the clever idea that they're going to build artificial islands. So they build a series of these artificial islands where um, they say initially now, this is really not going to be militarized. It's really not a threat. Uh, we just want to support our fishing fleet, uh, which is, after all, a peaceful fleet, although nowadays a large part of their fishing fleet is actually the equivalent of a, a coast guard or a coastal maritime unit uh, mobilizable for a variety of national security reasons. Uh, then they gradually add an airfield. Then they start bringing in missiles. Uh, and what they're doing is they're creating, they're creating a framework of islands which forces the U.S. Navy uh, hundreds of miles further away from the Chinese coast in a wartime environment. Uh, it, it's, it's a brilliant strategy. Uh, second example would be uh, their whole uh, Belt and Road Initiative where they, they have now made it open-ended. So uh, India, for example, has announced that they're very interested in being part of the Belt and Road Initiative for the Arctic Ocean uh, because the Chinese are building a huge number of icebreakers. Many, the United States has, I think, one new icebreaker being built, and I think the Chinese are like 15 or 20. Uh, huge disparity. And if you look at the, at the map of the world, you think, you know, why do the Chinese need this many icebreakers? Well, because they're thinking about uh, using the Arctic first for looking for oil, but second, if you ship from China to Europe through the Arctic, you save an enormous amount of time and money. And so they're really systematically looking out 20, 30 years and, and thinking in that kind of title. They're also, through their Belt and Road Initiative, going into places like Africa, where there are, I think, currently 46 different ports being developed by the Chinese. Uh, my wife is the ambassador to uh, the Vatican, so we spend a lot of our time in Italy. 
Italy recently China. has signed China. a contract with China. Hmm. Yeah, they recently signed on. I remember I was I was in Rome yeah, when that happened. They signed on. So 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 Genoa, which is the biggest port in Italy, will be run by the Chinese, and Trieste, which is the port which leads into Austria and South Germany, will be run by the Chinese. Well, twenty years ago that was inconceivable. So I think they have this very long term, very gradual approach. They're doing the same thing in space, uh, where they're now the first country to be on the on the dark side of the moon. Um, there are just all sorts of things happening that we don't fight, we don't fully appreciate, uh, and that I think you have to, um, frankly, have, have, have a sense that these are very smart people with a very long time horizon, uh, who are very patient, but are working very hard uh, to be the most competent and most capable country in the world. So there's there's a lot in there. I think it's very interesting, especially about the Belt and Road and, and South China Sea. From, from my viewpoint, one of the challenges about dealing with China is that they are pursuing power in a way that's different than how the United States is used to doing business. Not only in terms of a lot of the practices that you already mentioned, which are very problematic, but also outside of the region, they're relying largely on economic and political power. They see the United States sort of desire to be the global policeman, having that military footprint, getting involved in domestic politics as something that's costly and the reason for our decline. The way, at least when I read Chinese strategists, that they talk about the military is, yes, they want to be dominant militarily in the region, but then they just want to have the economic and political power beyond that to ensure that other countries accommodate their interests. So in the book, you often talk about you know, China wanting to dominate the world. Uh, and my own viewpoint that I wrote up uh, in a foreign affairs article called The Stealth Superpower is, I do think they want to militarily dominate the region. And under Xi Jinping, granted, the region has expanded beyond Northeast Asia and Southeast Asia to include Central Asia and maybe even South Asia. But I don't think that they want to be able to challenge the United States militarily, you know, in Europe, for example, or even in the Middle East. Is that also how, how you see China trying to exercise its power? Yeah, I, I would draw two distinctions. I mean, I think what you said is largely right, but with the caveat that in the age of cyber capabilities and in the age of space, uh, you can become a global power uh, without rebuilding the American military. Right. And in fact, one of our weaknesses may be that we are so wedded to an end of the 20th century military system that we don't realize how many changes are underway. Um, and so I would, I would start there. Um, I don't think the Chinese have any great planning, uh, certainly in the next 20 or 25 years, to try to take us on militarily in a, convention, in a traditional sense. But I do think they're trying to build the kind of cyber capabilities. And I think this is part of where Huawei is actually an extraordinary national asset for them. Uh, and I think that they're trying to build a capability in space, both of which have global implications. They're also, I think, to a degree that we underestimate, gradually extending capabilities. They've, they've even uh, b begun cooperating on some small military things with the Germans. Uh, so you have both a Russian-Chinese uh, collaboration where they're now doing joint patrols in the Pacific, and you have some activity now between China and Germany. And I think the Chinese are open to working with virtually anybody. Uh, and I think their goal would be to ultimately create an alternative coalition. Not that China by itself would take us on, but that if you ended up, for example, 
uh, with a China-Russia-India, I mean, China-Russia-Iran uh, coalition, uh, they would be fairly formidable. And I think it would be very hard for us to see how the United States would, would uh, win a conflict in which they were allies. So some of the examples you just mentioned, right? China is happy to work with any government, regardless of, of how they treat their people. Huawei, you know, China has state-owned enterprises, which they can direct, but then they also have laws on the books that make it so they can compel their private companies to support the overall objectives. And we know that there's uh, issues of corruption along the Belt and Road. I myself was in uh, Djibouti in Ethiopia about two years ago and found out I was asking about the railroad infrastructure that the United States and other countries had offered basically a grant to build that road, uh, but instead they went with the Chinese, and the rumor was because some key officials had uh, been taking bribes to allow that. So I often wonder, and, and, I, and, and I'm curious about your response to this, do, the, do our democratic values make it harder for us to compete with China on the international stage, or do you see them as an asset? Oh, I think in the short run, they make it harder, just as they made it harder to compete with the Nazis, and they made it harder to compete with the Soviet Union. In the long run, the problem with corruption uh, is that it leads to a very sick state uh, in which nobody can trust anybody. I mean, as Gorbachev discovered, uh, when uh, Chernobyl occurred, uh, the bureaucracy had been so corrupted that the only really accurate information he could get was from Norwegian and Swedish television. Uh, and it was one of the reasons he went to Glasnost and Perestroika is he suddenly realized that the whole system was corrupt. So one of the challenges, and by the way, and as you know, because you're a scholar on this stuff, uh, one of the things that's happening with the Chinese is in a number of countries, particularly in Africa, they made promises they're not keeping. In a number of countries, they said, oh, we'll go build a bridge. What they didn't say was they're going to send 12,000 Chinese to do it. So instead of hiring local people and creating local jobs, they actually have increased the resentment. Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's not like the Chinese any more than the Soviets or the Nazis. I mean, they're not 12 feet tall. They're not in, infallible. Uh, they have significant weaknesses. In the short run, bribery is effective. In the long run, honesty is vastly more effective. And as I, I had an Australian diplomat say to me recently, there are a lot more folks in the world that want to join the American club than want to join the Chinese club. And I think that's almost certainly true. So to go back to the South China Sea, uh, I've been working a lot on this issue and have been trying to push this idea of the critical nature of the South China Sea and the U.S.-China strategic competition. Uh, just militarily, you've mentioned some of the problems associated with the United States being pushed farther out. I think our conventional deterrent against China gets severely eroded when we can't hold China at, at risk, and it's difficult for us to protect countries in the region, including many of our allies, from Chinese coercion. When I look at this administration, they, they obviously have, have recognized the challenge of the rise of China and have rightly articulated that we are in a strategic competition with China. But for some reason, the South China Sea hasn't been at the top of the agenda. Uh, the last I checked, President Trump has never tweeted about it during his time as president. And as far as I know, in terms of the public record, it's never come up in discussions with Xi Jinping. Uh, so I'm curious, you know, why do you think this, given how important it is, and given that you very clearly outline its importance in your book, why do you think this has been an issue mainly among elites and scholars and hasn't risen to sort of the national leader level? Well, of course, at one level, it's an, it's an issue with the American military. 
uh, and they are vividly aware of it. Uh, on the other hand, you know, I think strategically what we've been doing is wrong. Uh, we, we, as you know, we rely on a model that our ships uh, will go within 12 miles of the Chinese islands and will routinely go through there. And we have been organizing so that French and Canadian and Australian and British and other ships have also been going through there to, to maintain the right of passage. Uh, I think in the long run that's a dead loser uh, because in, in a conflict environment you wouldn't be able to maintain it. And I've been arguing with, by the way, zero effect. Uh, so what we ought to do is take the Chinese model and say this is terrific, the idea of building islands in international waters is great, and build three islands to the west of the Chinese islands between them and the Chinese mainland. Uh, the, the minute we announced that, they would go nuts. And we would then be in a position to say to them, look, you're either going to demobilize these islands uh, and turn them over to an international body or do something, or we're going to build three islands that interdict your islands but we're not going to let you establish a de facto dominance in the region. Uh, and I think that the, the, the challenge here, I'm guessing, okay, let me be upfront, uh, because I've been involved in conversations with the administration. I know that a large number of people are aware of the South China Sea. I think part of the challenge is there are so many components of what's going on. You know, do you worry about uh, stealing intellectual property? Do you worry about the degree to which they... Uh, cheat against American companies? Do you try to figure out how to offset the National Basketball Association model? Uh, do you worry about Belt and Road? I mean, there are, there's so many different components underway that I think it's been hard to get a coherent grand strategy. And I really think part of the reason I wrote this book is to make the argument that we need to recognize this is not, a, this is not all of government. This is all of society. That's the real lesson of Huawei, that we are in a competition where we need to think about all of Chinese society as a competitor, and we need to think about how we're going to overmatch that. Uh, and that's going to take a fairly significant amount of time. In, in, uh, in the Cold War, it took us from 1946 to 1950 to finally think through what we were doing. And that was with a generation uh, that had fought World War II and were used to thinking on a huge scale. We have very few people in the current bureaucracy who are capable of doing that kind of thinking. Along those lines, I recently was testifying on the Hill, and, and one of uh, my colleagues who was testifying with me mentioned uh, this, this statistic about the difference between the Soviet Union and China. And it went something like, you know, the Soviet economy was half the size of what China's economy is with respect to the United States, um, but the United States is spending half as much on its military to deal with the challenge. So it seems that, you know, we were in a better resource position, perhaps, vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union than we are in the competition with uh, China. Given your own experience in Congress and in, in American politics, what do you think are some of the changes that we need to make domestically to make sure that we do have the resources to compete with China? Well, you know, that's part of why I wrote that chapter, that it isn't China's fault, because a lot of what has to be done is not, is not China. Uh, you know, when you have six schools in Baltimore in which last year not a single student in six schools, not a single student could pass the state math and, and writing exam, you have a crisis that would be there whether the Chinese existed or not. And so we need very dramatic, deep reforms in our own system. We need to reform the Pentagon. This is, this is a tired bureaucratic structure 
you know, I try to remind people, uh, it was originally built in 1943, so that uh, 23,000 people using carbon paper and manual typewriters could manage a worldwide war. Now we have iPads, smartphones, etc. We still have 23,000 people. Uh, you know, it, it, it's maniacal. And of course, it, it slows everything down. It makes everything too expensive. Um, we've got, so you have huge zones of reform that we need. The Chinese currently are mopping up all sorts of international organizations by basically bribing countries. Um, and they're going to end up either, either being the leader or having picked the leader for an amazing range of international organizations. We are not even prepared to start thinking about a campaign on the scale and complexity that we're going to need in places like the Food and Agricultural Organization or the World Health Organization. Just go down the list. And it's astonishing uh, how methodically successful they've been. So I think that uh, we're going to have to, if, we, if we're serious and we are determined to overmatch the Chinese, uh, we're going to have to really get our act together. We're going to have to go through some very painful and very profound reforms. And part of the reason that I wrote uh, Trump versus China was to set the stage for people to have this conversation and to recognize that everything the president's doing, which I think is the right general direction, is about 10% of what we need to do if we're ultimately going to be capable of competing with China. Well, I'm happy uh, that you especially wrote about the bureaucratic inertia at the Pentagon. I have, uh, in my own career, have experienced that firsthand and have made a number of suggestions, but given that I'm a bit lower on the totem pole, they have not been uh, widely accepted. But I would say that, you know, the United States military, as you point out, the South China Sea situation, at the highest strategic, strategic levels, you know, they get the threat, and the United States military has understood this as, as a challenge long before President Trump articulated it publicly. But the overall bureaucracy is still not focused on Asia. I'll give you one anecdote. Um, the, there is a professional military education in the Air Force that was just revamped to allow for studies, for regional studies, once you get to a field grade officer level. And they include every region but Asia. And this is the new revamping. You're, kid, you're that, kidding. I'm not kidding. That just came out, um, that they're putting online now. And so as an as a Asia specialist, I find this increasingly frustrating, the amount of time... That's I, painful. It is painful. The amount of time I spend learning about key leadership engagements with tribal leaders that, that while we're very relevant and important to the conflicts that the United States fought in Afghanistan and Iraq, are not going to be relevant for great power competition. So I really do hope that some That's of right. these recommendations about you know, how to influence just the bureaucracies of the lower levels, not only of the military, but of all aspects of the government, of students, um, are really taken into account, because I think that is, that is so amazingly important. Um, when you talked about the threat to the United States, you do mention in the book that you think it's an existential threat. Now, my own interpretation, I kind of look at what China's doing. I think they are challenging the United States on the global stage. I think they are a military threat to the United States and the region. Um, and besides maybe harassing a few U.S. companies or, or Americans who are deeply engaged with China, the average American does not feel the influence uh, of China. But in your book, you talk about how you do think it is an existential threat. So. I was wondering if you could articulate a bit more about why you think that it is, it is a deeper threat than potentially uh, others have previously characterized it as. Well, look, I, I think it's an existential threat in the sense 
in, in two different ways. The first is, uh, if they work at it and we're dumb enough, they could create a coalition which would have a balance of power against us in a way that we have not experienced uh, in American history because for much of the first hundred years uh, we hid behind the Royal Navy and for the second hundred years we had a huge worldwide alliance. So we, we, we don't know what it's like to live in a world where there's a hostile dominant force that has a coalition that's capable of overmatching us. That would be an existential threat from the outside. But they're also a threat and I think this this, this problem <clears throat> with the National Basketball Association, uh, the problem with Winnie the Pooh, uh, the problem with the, the cartoon that is now banned from China uh, because it had, a, it had a show in which uh, Xi Jinping was sort of ridiculed. Uh, they're beginning to move into defining, you, you saw this by the way, <clears throat> the new Top Gun. Uh, I think if I remember correctly, uh, they got Tom Cruise to take the Taiwanese and the uh, Japanese uh, flags off his uh, off his flight suit, mm -hmm. um, and and just in order to release it. And there's a fight underway right now where Tarantino is refusing to edit uh, his uh, movie to meet the needs of the Chinese censors. Uh, but it's that it's that willingness not just to tell us what happens inside China, but to start telling us what ought to happen over here. And I think that's why. Uh, it is a genuine existential threat. I would um, just mention there's a great book by a, uh, a professor at UVA, Ann Kokos, called I Think Hollywood Made in China that outlines the various ways that China uses its market to compel movies to take one plot line over, over another plot line. And as a China specialist, every time I watch a movie in which the Chinese come in as the heroes, I know to look for who has financed um, that movie. And th so that definitely does, I think... Yeah. Have, have a, by the way, yeah, I think he just gave me a future podcast. If I can, we'll track that guy down and see if he'd like to spend some time talking about it. I love movies, and so this would combine two of my passions into one podcast. I think that'll be a lot of fun. Well, I tell you, she 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 knows a lot about this topic, and and I have found that her presentations on it are quite interesting. Now, I myself, as you know, focus on the military issues um, and the prospects of conflict between. China and the United States. Um, and one of the things that I look at a lot are allies and partners in the region. So a lot of people would argue that this is a key strength for the United States, right? That we have partners like Australia and Japan that are um, supportive of, of US goals and that we're working together in our competition with China. In terms of your recommendations, what are some ways that you think we could revamp the alliances or do more with the alliances in this competition that goes, I guess, beyond the region to you know, broader issues in terms of China's impact on our societies, but also China's impact on the world. Well, I think we have to uh, look in a very serious way at what we are going to be doing uh, to knit people together on a more permanent basis. For example, in the South China Sea, uh, we probably have a real interest to try to get India to join us uh, because they have a huge interest. The South China Sea, I think, has one-third of all the world's shipping go through it. Uh, so uh, every maritime country and every big exporting country has a huge interest in the South China Sea. We also have complexities. I was just in Japan a couple weeks ago, and the, the enmity that still exists between Korea and Japan, going back to the Japanese occupation of Korea from 1905 to 1945, that's still very real. And it makes it harder 
to get them to work together in alliance uh, because there's still so much friction, particularly on the Korean side. Uh, so at some levels, you've got to be constantly working at opening those up. Uh, I think uh, in the case of, of the Australians, I think they've really turned the corner. I think they discovered uh, from some painful experiences that the Chinese are not necessarily good partners uh, and that uh, the weight of China can be very disruptive and, and, and very uncomfortable. So I think we're, we're in good shape there. But in the long run, we also want to knit together, I think, all of the smaller countries. And we've done a little bit of that in the past. But I think it's got to be more methodical because the Chinese are pretty good at institution building. They've actually taken over something we used to do well and the British used to do well. And I think that we've got to go back and get back in that competition. Uh, when we do go there, uh, we have a huge success. I mean, people still have a bias uh, of being afraid of the Chinese and wanting to keep the U.S. actively as a player in the region. But then we've got to pay our dues uh, and have people, the president, the vice president, the secretary of state and others, uh, actively engaged with those countries so that they have a feeling that, that we're taking them seriously. In the region, I, I agree, the smaller countries have become increasingly important in this, co in this competition. Um, in my book, The Costs of Conversation, Obstacles to Peace Talks in Wartime, I specifically lay out how China often tries to leverage smaller countries to pressure the United States to constrain our ability to act, especially in contingencies. So the idea that for the United States to be more competitive, that we have to pay attention not only to our alliances, but obviously to, to other countries that maybe aren't allies, but countries like Malaysia, Indonesia, India that play a critical role in the region, I think is, is an important way forward. What? Well, and I think yeah. in, that, in, that, in that process, let me just say, I think that's part of the way we've got to think about society on society. We need to have our charities, we need to have our corporations, we need to have our military, and we need to have our diplomacy all aligned in the same direction, working with these small countries, in which case we can have enormous influence because we still have huge advantages in that kind of a competition. Because I think being the security partner of choice is no longer enough for a lot of countries, even if that's what the United States offers. Given the economic power and the political clout of China, the United States needs to offer a lot more as an attractive partner. So, so all those agencies actually having a whole-of-government approach. I mean, the Chinese think that we now have a whole-of-government approach. When I speak to them, they're very worried about it. And I, you know, I wish that we were as organized um, as they think that we well, are. And, and, but I would go, I'd go beyond that. We need a whole-of-society approach. I mean, Huawei is a brilliant example of creating a corporation that is competitive on a global basis, subsidized by the Chinese government, but nonetheless, it's a corporation. There is no American competitor to Huawei, and we should feel disgraced by that. We, we dominated telecommunications. Uh, we invented most of modern telecommunications, and yet our big corporations are so loaded down with debt they're so much looking inwardly at the United States. They're so bureaucratic and lacking in imagination that they have basically yielded the field to a Chinese corporation. I mean, it's, it's, it, you couldn't have imagined this 20 years ago. Well, it's been great talking to you about your book. Our time is running out. If you just have one last sentence or takeaway, the final say to potential readers about what they need to take away from your book, what would it be? It's, it's very simple. Xi Jinping is the General Secretary of the Communist Party, the Chairman of the Military Commission, and the People's Liberation Army is an arm of the party, not the government, and President of the People's Republic of China in that order. 
And as long as you always remember that you're dealing with the general secretary of the Communist Party, you understand all the negotiations and all of the meetings dramatically better than if you allow them to get away with pretending that he is a normal Western executive. Thank you for that. It was nice chatting with you. Thanks.